This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to delve into all things municipal. And we finally have work beginning on the Scarborough subway extension, but the completion date isn't until 2030. Not that anyone believes it will be done on time. And in the meantime, commuters will face longer commutes because the city has said that it will shut down the Scarborough RT next fall due to the huge costs with maintaining it. So meanwhile, a group of city councillors is touting another disincentive to driving as a way for the cash-strapped city to raise revenue. So councillors Diane Sachs of Ward 11, Chris Moisey of Ward 13, and Alejandro Bravo of Ward 9 are touting parking taxes as a potential solution to transit funding shortfalls. And it's an old idea that council rejected a decade ago. It involves charging businesses levies for the parking spaces that they offer. And these charges do exist in places like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago's Sydney and Melbourne. And in Canada, Montreal charges up to two bucks a day per downtown parking space, while Vancouver applies a 24% parking tax to the price of parking rights. Now, uh, these would be applied again in commercial parking lots like uh, our parking lot for our employees or much bigger parking lots uh, in malls and places like that. And it would add a significant cost. So we'll see what our panel thinks of that. And harking back to the issue of basic services and maintenance that the city is supposed to uh, provide, column by Matt Elliott highlighted some pathetic numbers. Toronto's Transportation Department responded to just 15% of snow clearing demands within 36 hours, which is a pretty generous timeline. Just 62% of reports on potholes um, uh, on expressways within 24 hours, and it handled just 29% of requests to deal with illegal dumping within five days. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'm joined by David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Hi, Libby. Hi, there. Hi. So, uh, David, let's begin with you. In the last week, we saw reports. You, you were, the last time we talked, uh, going on about not putting off too much infrastructure, not letting things deteriorate too much. And your thing has always been the city has to deliver basic services, has to be a city that works. And seems like uh, every day we get more evidence that it isn't. Well, that's right. And, and I think actually we take heart from the fact that increasingly people are, are finding it, that it's really important that maintenance and making sure that we're looking after the stock we've got before we, even before we build new things, I think it's catching on. 
um, talking about maintenance is not one of the great conversation pieces around. So it, it's taken a long time for people to actually see that that we are not crumbling. I've seen that word used. It's not, not that bad. But it becomes far more expensive the more you delay it. And people begin to feel if the place is not organized, if it's not neat, if it's not looked after, if it's not cared for by the public authorities, they won't do so much caring for it either. So it's a very important item. I'm glad to see that that there's a public discussion about it because the co- we, we always need to make sure that we are um, looking after the things we've got first. I might say... One of the reasons we've been slow to pick it up is that the generations of Toronto governments have been really good uh, at uh, looking after maintenance, and it, brought, and, it, and it brought with it a habit on people's minds to not litter the place or wreck the place. They cared for the place. The more you don't care for it as a government, the less people that you're working with will, will, will look after it as well. Well, yeah, that's true because we've seen an increase in littering and everything like that in the last while. And it's possibly because uh, it, it's not looked after. Uh, Karen, and and yet the latest city budget, I mean, we know the, the city is really cash-strapped. It is uh, kind of counting on senior levels of government, but we have to see if they bite. Uh, it's deferred more and more capital and maintenance. Yeah, and we've, you know, as David mentioned, it's a, it's a problem not just in terms of the livability of the city and the cleanliness of the city, but it also um, becomes a problem for the government when they're talking about a 7% tax increase. And, you know, residents start to wonder, you know, where where is this money going? And, you know, it wasn't, um, this is, and this is where, you know, Mayor Tory has a bit of a PR issue in that, you know, there's a lot, the city does have a big budget. I think, what is it, $13 billion? Mm-hmm. And when you can only reply to 15% of the snow clearing calls or 68% of the pothole calls and a significant number on the expressways, you know, it does, it does, it, it, all these little things start to add up. Um, and so when you're coming with your handout, you know, residents have a right to say, like, okay, what's going on in your shop? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I keep harking back to is, is, uh, you know, the work. I mean, if people are refusing to go into work, well, that might be part of the problem, possibly a small part. Perhaps. I, I mean, I think that just like Karen said, if people are being expected to pay more in property taxes or, or just paying any other taxes at all, it's, it's, it's frustrating for everyone in Toronto to see all of these broken down, these potholes, these overflowing garbages. Yeah, this summer, it, I think that it took Toronto Animal Services on average, like almost two weeks to pick up the, the corpses of dead raccoons. People were putting boxes over them with like, like Sharpie letter dead raccoon, look out. <laughs> because like like basic, basic things aren't being done. And I think as David was talking to about kind of like, you know, the broken window theory in criminology. Yes, when yes. when when people see, you know, a neighborhood in a state of disrepair, they're more likely to litter, they're more likely to commit crimes. I mean, that's how the theory, you know, it's from the eighties. Um, but in New York City, I know a lot of politicians have used it in the past. Um and how that relates as well to kind of controversial policing tactics like stop and frisk. Police are more likely to be patrolling neighborhoods that are in disrepair because of the correlation between crime rates and just, just I, I don't know how to put it, but disrepair. You know, it's not yeah. exactly broken windows, but potholes, garbage everywhere. The city just really needs to step up for everybody's sake. 
So uh, a few of uh, the downtown councillors, uh, loosely downtown councillors, are, are going back to this idea of parking levies for commercial spaces as a way to raise revenue. I know that the mayor, it was looked at in 2013, and the current mayor, John Tory, has said that it's it's unworkable. And uh, to me, it seems a bit unfair. Uh, we can get onto the business versus residential in a bit. But uh, what do you think of that, David? Does that seem like a good place to uh, extract some cash? Well, <laughs> yes. All taxes, of course, are unpopular, and all taxes are extracting cash. There's no doubt about it. I think that at least it's worth having the debate. I think that I think the, the councillors at least should be congratulated for raising it. It's never easy to raise taxes. You're, you're right; it can be unfair, but it is. It, it does occur in in many other cities, and for good reason. Cities constantly need more money, and you have to find a way in which you can get it. So I'm not against the debate. I'd be very careful about the amounts, and there may be variations on on where you put, where you apply it and where you don't. So uh, the debate's worthwhile. I, I would not conclude on, on just just willy nilly taking any any number, but I think it needs some some analysis and some public discussion. Okay, well, Karen, it it seems to me the last time I looked, and this this ratio might be wrong at this point, where businesses paid much more in taxes than residential. And and it also feels very undemocratic. You know, I know here our previous city councilor, like he could not care less about business and didn't listen. But, you know, the bottom line is that uh, we're here and we pay taxes here, but we don't vote here. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like, uh, you know, there's, there's, no real accountability. You know, I think most people understand that to have a healthy city, you have to have healthy businesses. But uh, but putting more on businesses seems to me unfair, Karen. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The ratio between the rate at which businesses and corporations pay is two times. It was two and a half times. It may have been rationalized down, but it's at least double what uh, property taxpayers pay as a percentage of their land value. And so you can call it a parking levy, but the reality is it's just another tax on business. Yeah. Because some businesses will be able to recoup it. Some people, some businesses will not because the infrastructure to charge for parking is just not feasible. And so it, it just, just call it what it is. Just call it a parking tax on business. And then ask yourself, is this the right time to be imposing it when, if you're going to put it in the downtown core, uh, vacancies are at an all time high. Uh, offices are scrambling to figure out what the return to work looks like. Uh, there's, you know, already transit ridership is down because commuting patterns have changed. And so the debate was had 10 years ago and the decision was made then not to proceed. Some of those reasons remain valid, but there's actually new considerations to make uh, in terms of are the repercussions of this additional tax worth the unintended consequences on business at this time? Yeah, and I don't, I don't I even know, know if you if you can call them unintended because it's pretty obvious people are having yeah. trouble retaining workers. It's a big incentive, especially yeah. if you're in a spot that's not well served by transit. And, and businesses are just getting back on their feet. And and depending, 
it's like, can you imagine? So you're commuting to work because you don't want to take the subway. And, you know, suddenly you're being charged now another additional $5 to park or $10 a day to park. You're not going to come back to the office. You're just going to work from home. And so if we want to encourage people to come back to the office, this is the exact wrong approach. Well, exactly, exactly. And it's hard for businesses too, because I doubt that businesses that want to retain their, their good employees are going to start charging their employees for parking. Right. Yeah, that is not a great, a great thing. I think for anyone, um, in the, in the job market, uh, looking at a job, if you know that you have to pay for parking, um, that's definitely a deterrent. I, I think that there needs to be a distinction made though between businesses, like small independent businesses and huge commercial operators, like, Cadillac Fairview and Oxford properties, the ones that own the malls. Like, I think that taxing them for people to use the parking lots, they're pulling in so much money. So say you start... And those parking lots are so crazy. They're crazy (laughs) and they're huge. So I don't think the consumers should necessarily have to pay that tax, but maybe the mall operators should or the operators of huge properties, strip malls, big Walmart plazas. Um, But I do think that it, it would be not very popular to be to be levying this tax upon small independent businesses, especially in the downtown core where parking is already kind of at a premium and, or, or even bigger businesses in the core. But you know what? I mean, you know, everybody is saying, or many people are saying a recession is coming. So is that even the right time to start uh, with uh, the malls? Because uh, uh, if there's a recession, then those businesses are going to be hit as well. True. I think it's an interesting idea, but the timing could not be worse. <laughs> Uh, David, so you're saying it's still good to have the conversation. Well, I, I, I think it is. I mean, no tax is going to be popular. And Karen was right when she pointed out that, and I was trying to apply that, that there's differences between uh, large owners of land, large commercial enterprises, and small businesses. I think it's Karen. But, um, so it, it, there, there, it, it, it's not just one big blow. It needs it, it to have more sophistication than that. But but I hear what people are are saying, and that is that either is a bad time to do it. It's never a good time to put on a tax, but at least the discussion would should be had. Um, and, and if they if they decide to close quote no no pun intended, but really so uh, if they decide to park it for a while, that uh, that's okay. But at least they've had some discussion about it, and I think that's worthwhile. Uh, uh, Karen, do you think there's anything else? You know, we keep having this conversation about revenue tools. I know that people at the city keep wanting to put a toll on the gardener. The province won't have that. Uh, is there anything else that you could see that is a viable way for the city to raise money? I mean, if one, one place where I think John Tory has a point, he said, can't run a modern city on, uh, taxes that, that were levied at Confederation. Yeah, and um, there's no question. And so, you know, it, it, and, and unfortunately, all of these ideas just really nibble around the edges. And, you know, maybe they're going to, they say $500 million, it won't. Maybe it'll bring in, you know, $50 million, maybe. You know, so, you know, what, what is the impact that you're doing for the marginal amount that you're bringing in? Just like the vacancy tax. I don't think that's going to bring in the amount of money that they're projecting in the budget. And so... You know, all mayors have called for revenues to grow with the economy. Well, the challenge is that what happens to those revenues when the economy shrinks, which is what the land transfer tax, which is what's happening to the land transfer tax right now. And so, yeah, it, it, it just does call for um, a bigger discussion about what does the city do? How does it get funded to do those services? And, you know, maybe a hard discussion about what services are no longer affordable. And those are hard, hard discussions for a council to have. 
but, um, you know, absent a percentage of the HST or GST coming to the city as a revenue stream, these are just ideas that will really just aggravate the public without solving the fundamental financial systemic sustainability structures the city has right now. Okay, let's take a call from Kate in Toronto. Hi, Kate. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Well, I think the city should be um, more forward in in uh, collecting parking, street parking fees. I live in a neighborhood, social housing. Uh, some families have two and three big crossovers. They park day and night on the streets and they don't pay anything because they put a handicapped parking permit in their car windows. This has gone on for years and years. I have no problem with people with handicapped parking permits. I use one myself, but I pay a fee for my little parking pad. And I think if the city started clamping down on that, people who park near subway stations on side streets and parking in LCBO lots for free all day, I think the city could collect quite a bit of revenue if that's what they did. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how much that would add up to, and they'd have to have a pile more people enforcing it. Um, they could but also, yeah, th- they could also run into some human rights legal issues trying to... Uh, there, <laughs> there definitely are some people who abuse it, and maybe oh, yeah, sure. that's just what the caller has seen. Uh, I want to talk about something that's not strictly municipal, and David, I know this is near and dear to your heart, So, uh, and we are going to cover this more extensively in the next segment on the show, and that is two investigations into the Greenbelt and the Greenbelt designation of land. So, David, uh, what is your reaction to that? It's going to be the Integrity Commissioner and the Auditor General. Yeah, for sure. Uh, three cheers, so uh- to the two of them, both the Auditor General and, and the Integrity Commissioner. Uh, good for them. I think the re- I think it's going to be a couple of months before there's, well, it will be a couple of months before it's reported, uh, but uh, uh, I think it's a really, really good step forward. A number of people have been pushing it uh, and a number of organizations. I think you're also going to find more interest from the federal government because it's becoming clearer that, that the uh, the impact of the, the, the impact of what the government's intending to do uh, uh, with the agricultural preserve, the impact on ecological and agricultural assets is going to be quite strong and therefore affect the uh, the the, uh, the new uh, Rouge National Park. So, so there's a, I think there's going to be even more interest from the federal government. Uh, there was something that I saw as of yesterday that I wondered if it was some kind of out from uh, the uh, the municipal affairs minister because I really hadn't seen it before, but it was couched in terms like this was always part of the plan. And of course, uh, when I went looking for it again today, I couldn't find it, but it was a note saying that any bit of this uh, designated uh, now non-greenbelt land that isn't developed in two years will go back to the greenbelt. Well, I, I don't remember the two years, but there's always been the assumption, even with this, not the assumption, they stated, the government stated that, that it has to be done, I thought, within five years, or at least started within five years, or it would revert back to the green belt. I, I, have, uh, I don't know how they got to that number. Um, I, think he, I think probably it was just a bit of a sop to those who were concerned about it. Um, it's, it's not good enough sop at all. Um, so I'm not sure what he meant by it, because two years is not a, 
not possible. The, the amount of work that needs to be done since they're wrecking both ecological and agricultural assets, that takes a little bit of figuring out how to do that and how to do it in a way that it's going to make sense to all involved. So I don't, uh, the two years seems a bit slight to me. Hmm. Yeah, or maybe till there's some deal. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, they have a majority, but but there seems to be just, uh, Karen, a huge amount of opposition to this. There is an, a lot of opposition to this for um, a number of reasons. One is that, you know, the, the Green Belt, you know, people made decisions around where building and housing was going to go based on the fact that that land was protected. And so the fact that it became unprotected and some developers certainly appear to have um, had windfall opportunities as a result of it is a cause for eyebrow raise, no question. But, you know, on, on two levels, one is that, okay, so there's a review, there'll be a report, the report will say something, and there'll be no consequence other than maybe you shouldn't have done that. Okay, well, thanks. There's not much you can do with that recommendation. And, you know, secondly, um, this whole idea that that land will go back to the green belt if significant development hasn't started is just nonsense because in some cases, the municipality needs to add infrastructure and they can't do that in two years. It's just not possible. So the whole definition of started um, has zero meaning. And so, and the fact is if these lands were purchased with the, accept- with the expectation they could be developed and paid premium rates for it, what, then what? <laughs> so it's, they're in the soup, they put, they put themselves in the soup, and I'm glad that there is some opposition against it, because there should be. Uh, the way it was done was not um, transparent, and, uh, you know, but unfortunately, there's not going to be a remedy. <laughs> okay, that's a little pessimistic, Lauren. Oh, well, I think I, I agree in that turning the land back over to the Greenbelt, regardless of whether it's done in five years, two years, it, it doesn't really matter in in terms of the habitats of species that they're displacing. So, okay, you've got a housing development right here, but the lands around it perhaps um, are going to be turned back to the Greenbelt. Like, you're still chopping up big sections of agricultural land, of environmentally uh, sensitive land. So I think that's a dumb cop-out if that's what they're trying to do. But I love that they are investigating this because it's regardless of whether anything shady happened or not, like it really looks that way. I mean, there are rich developers who are donors to the PC party who were purchasing up land in the Greenbelt two months before it was announced that that would even be a thing they could do. So I know um, Housing Minister Steve Clark and Premier Ford have both been like, yeah, we look forward to the results of the investigation and think they're going to be cleared in it. But, you know, it looks fishy. So. Premier Ford Ford was already cleared. And when this was announced yesterday, the news release out of his office, like, I don't know if he was throwing Clark under the bus, but was was saying, wait a minute, Premier Ford was cleared. Our guy is okay. Yeah. So I I think, um, yeah, that's the case. But Clark has also said he looks forward. Like, I, I don't oh, think well, that... Oh, what's he going to say? Exactly, right? I don't know if he will be cleared. Um, and even if Premier Ford has been cleared, like, he's still the man at the top of the food chain there. He's had to have some involvement if something, you know, went wrong. Um, I, I'm just really happy because of their, all of the opposition against this project and all of the, like, damage it's going to be doing to our environment, to the Greenbelt, that they're doing something. That two big, like big authorities are investigating kind of how this all came to be and who was tipped off about it and who's making money because of it. Well, uh, as I said, we are going to be looking at this in further depth and in the next segment, um, they're looking at it, but 
what they may be able to do about it, well, that's a very different story. Um, so um, moving along, uh, you know, we've been hearing uh, the deputations, people talking about the city budget, and it's, uh, I haven't really heard anything much new in there. Uh, is, is that something that is going to have any legs, Lauren, in your opinion? Uh, the city budget, just yeah. generally. Huh. I mean, not unless people are reporting on controversial parts, at least not with our audience, unless huh. there are kind of controversial bits coming up. I think otherwise, people aren't really going to be paying that much attention. I mean, inherently, a word like a term like city budget is something that would underperform for web audiences. People would not be clicking on that mm-hmm. because it's not exciting or sexy. But um, yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, a fun thing. Let's end with a fun thing. So after a couple of years, Winterlicious is coming back, which is a very popular Winterlicious, Summerlicious restaurant festival with special prices. But I have to say that this, this year, there seems to be a, a, you know, there's inflation, a big spike. And I, I was even surprised where at some of the higher end restaurants, where I think the top price for dinner the last time was, was about $55. $75. I don't know if they're going to get the same response in this type of economy. People going for two $75 dinners that is without tax, without tip, without alcohol. It's definitely not the deal that it used to be, that's mm. for sure. But um, we do see a lot of enthusiasm for Winterlicious just as a program. People want to get out there and support mm. um, local businesses. But yeah, it's definitely not the kind of great deal it used to be like a three course meal for $55, as you say, at a high end restaurant it used to be great. Um, now it's like, well, you know, I can kind of get that at many restaurants for $75 a plate. I could go out for a nice dinner somewhere. I mean, minus alcohol tip tax. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, Karen, are you going to be going out for Winterlicious? No, you know, I think, no, that's the <laughs> short answer. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about the idea of Winterlicious, the actual going out and spending money um, on Winterlicious, I, I think there's going to be, um, I, I think you're right, it, 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 the uptick or the uptake may not be what it was in past years. Well, um, what 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 I would say to people, and I'll, I'm going to ask David what his plans are in a moment, is, you know, uh, maybe lunch is a better deal. <laughs> David, are you going to be going out to Winterlicious? I think that is right, actually. People... If they feel that they need to save a little money, they'll try for lunch rather than dinner. And that may be something that the, the superlicious people ought to think about. Well, yeah, often it's it's the same meal. Uh, it's just uh, meal. a lot more yeah. expensive at dinner. <laughs> because, the, I mean, the great thing was, it was how do you get by the sort of doldrums of winter and, and making it affordable? Um, and and it's, uh, I think it's just been pointed out. Um, that's it's that's not not as affordable. It feels affordable. It's not as affordable as it seemed to be before. I think people are still looking to do something in the winter time. I think people are looking for uh, uh, winterlicious is a very popular program, but but these are different times than they were two years three years ago. 
Okay, well, you know what? I I haven't gone on yet, but I I've been told by my colleagues like you better hurry up if you want a reservation. <laughs> so, I don't know. I hope people do participate in the program, but um it's it's pretty pricey this year. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time. Thank you so much Karen Stintz, Lauren O'Neill, and David Crombie. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks all. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about those two investigations into the Green Belt. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, as we have been discussing, both the province's integrity commissioner and the auditor general have announced that they are doing their own respective investigations into the Ford government's Greenbelt plans. The integrity commissioner will be looking into municipal affairs and housing minister Steve Clark after a complaint was made by incoming NDP leader Marit Stiles, who commented on the, quote, curious timing of recent purchases of Greenbelt land by powerful landowners with donor and political ties to the Ontario PC party. And also, uh, it was news at least it was news to me, a spokesman for Steve Clark sent a statement saying that under this plan, any parcel that remained undeveloped or partly and whatever after two years would go back to the green belt. So numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Peter Tabbins, interim leader of the Ontario NDP. Hi, Peter. How are you? Libby, I'm very well, and nice to be back with you. I hope you're doing quite well yourself. Thank you. So uh, my question about these investigations, so I'm wondering what the bar is. Uh, do you... For uh, Do you have to prove that uh, a minister has his hands in the till, tipped somebody off, is getting a kickback, or uh, what about some kind of oblique hint that made these developers go out and buy this land for a song? So what is the bar? Well, if you're talking about what's the bar for the integrity commissioner or the auditor general to undertake a study, uh, to undertake an investigation, what the integrity commissioner said was, I need to see uh, documentation showing circumstances that indicate wrongdoing. Uh, and uh, in the case of his investigation of Minister Clark, uh, we provided an affidavit with uh, a number of points of information indicating uh, behavior that was extraordinarily suspicious. Uh, and the integrity commissioners accepted that as enough to justify digging further. Can you uh, tell us what that is? Um, I would have to dig out the documentation for you, Libby, but part of it relates to the fact that the uh, one of the lobbyists who actually pushed very hard on making all this happen was someone who had until April of 2022, been working in the minister's office. And uh, frankly, the recommendation or the standard we understand is that you have to stay away from a ministry that you've been working for for at least a year before you lobby. Um, it strikes us that uh, 
this is, um, on the face of it, a substantial problem. And that's something that uh, the Integrity Commissioner considered a serious point for investigating. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, in terms of the Auditor General, she's just going to do a value-for-money audit. Yeah, she will, because uh, as you may be aware, um, part of the land that, well, value for money and environmental impact, I believe, um, part of the land that's been turned over to developers was land that was purchased by the province at very great cost almost two decades ago, purchased at great cost to be preserved environmentally, and uh at the time purchased by a number of very powerful developers who held on to that land and at the time uh two decades ago fought very hard to get the designation changed so that they could in fact develop uh that um, that exchange uh is worth to those developers in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh ontario bought that land it sold it at a very low price put easements on it to protect it, and frankly, we're giving away hundreds of millions of dollars of value. That matters. You know, the people of Ontario paid up. They coughed up that cash, uh, and they did it in the expectation that the land would be preserved. We're losing that. Uh, how on earth the minister justifies giving away hundreds of millions of dollars of value uh, is beyond me. Well, surely land that was purchased two decades ago uh, is now worth a lot more. Oh, it is. But given that it was in a legally uh, protected reserve so that it was not developable, um, it should have stayed as not developable. Changing the rules so that suddenly someone can realize hundreds of millions of dollars in profit undermines the investment that was made by the people of Ontario. There, there are dollar consequences here. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so um, you're talking about some uh, possibly illegal or inappropriate lobbying. Uh, do you have anything that uh, connects the dots to Steve Clark himself? Um, well, I think it's up to the Integrity Commissioner to look into that. Uh, the decisions were made under his authority. And I would say you've got a situation where you've got a number of land parcels that change hands in advance of a decision that was not one that was expected. Uh, we're in a situation where twice the Premier has said the Green Belt will not be touched. Uh, you'll remember this during the 2018 election. I do. Yeah, and subsequently another attempt uh, he burned his fingers on that. And so the the commitment to not convert the lands seemed to be a fairly strong one from a political point of view. And anyone who bought land at, in advance of the decision by the minister was taking a huge gamble that they would be throwing away an awful lot of money. Well, um, uh, these are people who should be playing the stock market or playing the ponies because they seem to be able to guess when the dice will come up the right way. Hmm. Uh, do you, what do you make of this clarification uh, sent out by a spokesman that anything that I don't understand if it's remained undeveloped or there's no deal on after two years would go back to the green belt? Is the, are they giving themselves some kind of out or what is that? Well, that was part of the initial announcement and I think 
uh, it's their argument saying, well, we're really serious about this. Um, but it's hard for me to believe that, uh, given the hundreds of millions at stake, that a developer will not at least start digging holes on that land before 2025. You know, you're not you're not going to throw away hundreds of millions of dollars. You're going to move heaven and earth to get at that. Okay, so these investigations are underway. When it comes to a, a remedy or punishment, if that's the case, uh, right. they they don't have much uh, that they can do, right? Um, I don't believe so. The integrity commissioner can report uh, that he finds. Let, let's say the integrity commissioner finds that there's a breaking of the law. He will report that to the OPP and he'll make that public. Um, the auditor general isn't looking for law breaking. She's looking for a, what can I say, a betrayal of the trust of the people of Ontario, uh, with regard to the giving away of value that the people of Ontario paid for. Now, if you'll remember, Libby, and I'm sure you do, uh, it was the Auditor General's report on the gas plant scandal that really broke that one wide open. That's where she calculated that the Liberals had spent a billion dollars protecting their their seats for an upcoming election. If she finds, in fact, uh, that the value that's being given away here is huge, Politically, that's going to have an impact on the government. It may, it may cause them to back off. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen much in the way of backing off from them. But at the end of no. the day, I mean, at the federal level, we've certainly seen that, uh, you know, the integrity commissioner has ruled against the prime minister, what, three times? Yep. You know, that's a big yawn. Uh, um, I, I, I'd, I'd say two things here. One, when the integrity commissioner rules against you, it actually does have an impact uh, at the grassroots level. People notice that. It may be that, you know, he continues to sit in office, um, but he's a prime minister with relatively low approval numbers. But the other thing I'll say is this government, the Ford government, had to back off in their attack on education workers this past fall. Uh, they did have to back down on their earlier attempt to go after the green belt. So it is possible when the stars align, when public opinion polling shows they're in deep trouble, uh, that they move. And frankly, that's, I think, the, the biggest tool that the people of Ontario have right now. If they express that this government's popularity uh, has dived into the basement because of this action, uh, the potential is there to get them to move back. And I would say um, a negative result from the integrity, integrity commissioner, a negative finding about the government, um, a finding from the auditor general that this government has effectively wasted hundreds of millions of dollars of value that belong to the people of Ontario. I think that's going to be politically damaging, and I think that can have an impact on their actions. Hmm. And when do you expect these reports? Um, they don't give any deadlines, uh, but uh, the auditor general... Uh, her term of office comes up at the end of September this year, so my expectation is that she's going to deliver before then. She said in her letter that she was going to uh, deliver before the end of her um, uh, office period. And I'd say for the integrity commissioner, I would allow several months for that to happen. But again, neither of them 
gave an express uh, an explicit deadline. Okay, Peter Tabbins, thank you so much for that. Hey, Libby, a real pleasure. Yes, thanks. You take care. Have a good day. You take care as well. Okay. Yep. I remember Peter Tabbins uh, when he was a city councilor. I hate to date myself and him. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to talk to David McDonald from the Center of Policy Alternatives about uh, where those profits resulting from that huge inflation are actually going. And it's not where we may think. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We all know that food inflation is rampant and outpacing general inflation. And there's a big debate about whether the large grocers are taking advantage of this and profiting excessively. After all, some of them have been reporting record profits and the like of Loblaw companies and Sobeys deny this vigorously. Of course, not everyone believes them. David McDonald, senior economist of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, has studied where the money is going, and uh, it's not necessarily where we think it is. Uh, He joins me now. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. So what did you find? Well, so I took a different approach to inflation. We're often uh, looking using the CPI, these, these headline inflation numbers that track individual products and say whether the product, uh, you know, is price went up this month versus last month or last year. Um, now, that tells us a lot about the individual products, but what it doesn't do, because it's only tracking, you know, that final retail price that consumers pay, doesn't tell us who along the supply chain is the one jacking up the prices. You know, grocery stores say, well, it's just our input prices going up, which is a common um, theme for businesses. They say our input prices are going up. But of course, one company's input prices is just another company's sales prices one step down the supply chain. And so I was interested in this latest report of trying to figure out where all this money is going and who, you know, is the one along that supply chain jacking up the prices uh, that then end up in higher grocery store prices and higher furniture prices and higher everything else prices. And so what I found was that, uh, you know, there's only really four industries um, that are consuming about half of every inflation dollar that you're paying is ending up in one of four industries that uh, they're declaring as profit. Um, And so those industries are oil, gas, and mining, manufacturing, which includes critically the refining of oil and gasoline and diesel, um, the real estate industry, and the uh, financial industries. And so those four industries alone um, are, you know, consuming 47 cents of every extra dollar that you're paying in inflation. Uh, So what about the grocers? Uh, A lot of people have pointed out the grocers say, oh, no, not us. It's just we're paying more and we're passing it along. But some of them are declaring record profits. So how do you explain that? Yeah, so certainly, um, you know, margins, uh, which is, you know, it's sort of a proxy for markups, um, went through the roof in the first, uh, you know, in 2020 and 2021. They've come down a bit since then, but they remain, those margins remain higher than they were pre-pandemic. And so, you know, of every dollar that you're spending at a grocery store, more of it is being kept as uh, pre-tax profit. 
than would have been the case prior to the pandemic. Now, of course, grocery stores always argue their margins are low, which is true. They are low, uh, but they're higher than they were in 2019. And it appears that they may well remain there. Um, and so certainly a part of the story around, um, you know, the grocery store, high grocery store prices in general uh, can certainly be higher margins for grocery stores. Um, however, I think we need to keep in, you know, in perspective that um, that's a small part of a much bigger picture of where these inflation dollars are going. Some of that is probably going into profits in the grocery store industry, but a lot of it is going into profits in the uh, oil and gas industry. Hmm. But again, the the profits in the grocery industry are record. That's right. Uh, so they're they're. T- so they're hitting all-time highs, but I mean, what's what's potentially more important is um, is the margin, right? So every year, you know, we've got more people in Canada; they're spending more money in grocery stores and every place else, um, and so that's going to yield. Just if we did nothing, it's going to yield higher profits. Um, but the issue is of the money, you know, of every dollar that you spend in a grocery store, how much does that grocery store keep as profits um, versus having to pay? you know, in, in higher labor costs or higher input costs or something like that. Um, and it's certainly true that grocery store interest, sorry, grocery store input costs have risen. Uh, you know, grocery stores themselves are paying more for, you know, that apple or whatever that then they are putting on the shelves with a markup and then charging to consumers. Um, but again, you can still make money even if your input costs are going up. And the way you make money when input costs are going up is you pass all that on to consumers plus a little bit more. Uh, and you keep that a little bit more as profit. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I, most people would not be thinking about oil and gas. And is that just a function of, uh, you know, there's transportation involved in just about every good that we buy? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you you see the price at the grocery store go up. You know, the price of potato chips goes up, whatever, 15, 15% in the last two years, for instance. Um, and so you blame the grocery store. That's where you're buying it. Now, of course, that ignores the entire supply chain that gets that potato to a, uh, you know, to, to, a, to a bag of potato chips on a grocery store shelf. You know, you've got the farmer that sells to the food manufacturer that turns that potato into chips and bags it and then goes to the grocery store shelf. Well, each one of those industries along the way uh, can be marking up prices. Uh, no, there isn't really any evidence that's happening on the farmer side. There's some evidence that it's happening on the food manufacturer side uh, that they are keeping a bit of extra money, um, you know, in terms of higher margins. But then, of course, there's the diesel that runs the tractor for the farmer, and the diesel that runs the trucks that move the potatoes from the farm to the uh, to the factory, uh, and then from the factory to the grocery store shelf. And of course, you know, as the consumer, you don't see any of that. You just see the fact that your potato chips cost more. Uh, and you're upset about that, so you blame the place that you're buying them from. Uh, you know, there's some blame that may lay there, but there's also a fair amount of blame that goes down that supply chain and to all those critical energy inputs to move, you know, a relatively heavy good around from, you know, the potato in the field all the way to the uh, potato chip bag sitting on the grocery store shelf. And uh, is there anything that you think we can do about this? Well, I mean, there's very little consumers can do about it, unfortunately. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, of these top four industries that uh, are, are keeping most, you know, keeping half of all of our inflation dollars as profit, um, one of the four is actually paying a higher corporate tax, um, you know, in part to pay back the benefits they're getting from the pandemic. It's, but it's the banking industry, it's the finance industry, right? It's banks and insurance companies, they pay a slightly higher corporate income tax that started 
in the uh, you know in the spring budget that was introduced about a year ago. Uh, the other three don't. Uh, they don't pay this higher tax, despite the fact that they're actually the larger beneficiaries of inflation than the than the, than the banking uh, and insurance industry. And they probably should. I mean, this is a good argument. I think that these folks should also be paying, um, you know, this higher corporate income tax rate. Um, you know, the other thing I think that's worth thinking about is, uh, you know, maybe it's time to start to cap margins on how much, you know, the profit margins that can be made in the oil and gas industry or in the refining industry in Canada. Uh, when those industries are selling, uh, you know, gasoline or diesel into the economy. Clearly, this is incredibly disruptive, right? When you're jacking up diesel and gas prices and, you know, that filters through the entire economy and everyone's paying more for everything, um, you know, whether it's grocery store shelves or, uh, uh, you know, furniture or whatever. Um, You know, maybe it's time to start looking at allowable profit margins, not to say to eliminate profit, but to say, look, you can make a certain amount but you can't make an unlimited amount because of the damage that it does to the rest of the economy. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit of a flashback <laughs> to even like true, uh, the elder Trudeau uh, price controls. I, I, I don't think, uh, do you think there's any kind of appetite for anything like that? I mean, there's no appetite for inflation. Um, and true. so insofar as the, as inflation is just yielding high profits in these industries and that, you know, that's where a lot of these inflation dollars are going. I mean, interestingly, we do manage margins at a point at the tail end in some provinces of the gasoline supply chain. You know, the Atlantic provinces and Quebec do regulate the margins that are allowable um, in terms of markups for retail gasoline and, and the wholesalers of gasoline. Um, and so they have, you know, this is really the tail end. And so it's the, the last little bit along the way, you know, those margins are managed, uh, you know, at those provincial level. Um, you know, maybe in a world of climate change, when our inflation dollars are, in essence, fueling profits in the climate change industry, maybe it's time to revisit, um, you know, moving margin management further up the the supply chain. So it isn't as disruptive to the rest of the economy when you see oil prices go up. So uh, we've seen our politicians call uh, some grocery executives on the carpet or call them to testify. Uh, Some Mm -hmm. of the airline executives, is it time for them to call the oil and gas execs? Yeah, I mean, these are are the folks who, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, that grocery stores are blameless. I'm just saying, like, proportionally, there's a lot more blame uh, that can be spread into the uh, oil and gas extraction as well as uh, uh, petroleum refining industries than to the grocery store industries. Um, and so I think it's important to understand not just that, that final retail prices are going up and, you know, we blame the people, you know, we're often blaming people who are selling us those final retail goods and services, um, but also, you know, what's happening further down the supply chain in the economy. Um, it's also, I think, important to understand that, you know, we often think of inflation dollars as, you know, we pay more, but it doesn't really, the money doesn't go anywhere and no one's really winning from inflation because higher input costs are sweeping margins for businesses. But that's not true. I mean, the money does go somewhere, and someone is benefiting from all those additional inflation dollars that that you're spending. Um, and we need to have a much better perspective of that instead of, um, you know, focusing only on the final point of sale of retail goods and services, uh, but focusing on the entire impact on the economy. Okay. David McDonald, thank you so much for being with us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay. 
Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. Bob Kompsik will be in the chair. I'm taking a few days off. And Marissa Lennox will be here Monday and Tuesday. I'll be back midweek, and we will talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.